Oh man, I love this episode. We feature Andy Chen, who's a dear friend of mine, one of my favorite hysterical orthopedic surgeons on the planet. We have a rich history together. We went to uh, the Beijing Olympics in 2008, and we had the unique opportunity of really helping to educate Chinese orthopedic surgeons from all over the country with knee and shoulder surgery. Uh, we've shared some time uh, with ski jumping as I was one of the members of the U.S. ski jump team, a medical team, and Andy is the medical director and head team physician. He's going to be in Beijing in 2022 in February for the Olympics representing us. This is a fun episode. We share some great stories, great laughs. I know you're going to love it. Hashtag follow the pro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best. I am super excited to bring one of my absolute favorite orthopedic surgeons on the planet. Uh, today, we have Dr. Andy Chen, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. He is the medical director and head team physician for USA Nordic Sport, which is ski jumping and Nordic combined. He's the founding partner of the Alpine Clinic way up there in Franconia, New Hampshire. Andy Chen, my brother, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I am fantastic. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, unfortunately for our guest today, we're audio only, but I have to say we're on our 102nd episode, but dude, you are getting best dressed award today. You got this <laughs> sweet sport coat going on. You got Vegas style. I love it, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. All right. Beautiful. So uh, you and I have a rich history. We've had some really great stories together doing some really cool things, which we'll get to, but what we always like to do is just find out more about each individual orthopedic surgeon, where they're from, how they decide about orthopedics and all that good stuff. So so you you didn't grow up too far from me. I grew up in Pikesville, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, and you grew up in a suburb outside of D.C. and Potomac, Maryland. So, so tell us about that early start and when orthopedics was there for you, your parents, all that good stuff. Yeah, so um, both of my parents worked for the federal government. Uh, my father worked for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and my mother for the Library of Congress. So I grew up in the uh, public school system in Potomac. And, uh, you know, I know we briefly touched upon this, but it was, a, it was an interesting rearing in Potomac because, you know, as, as you know, Potomac is one of those uh, heavily Jewish enclaves in this country. And um, I, I think I went to 14 bar and bat mitzvahs. Uh, I have I have a couple of my own leather yarmulkes that say my name on it. Uh, <laughs> so the fact that you went to more bar mitzvahs than I did is actually is actually pretty impressive, Andy. So, but I mean, in Potomac, I mean, what a great place to to grow up, though, right? Highly motivated kids in a public school system uh, where you know you knew you were driven to to want to excel and do well at school, and and so you know, so Hopkins is where you go in '89. Uh, yeah. which is obviously, you know, one of our country's amazing, you know, universities. And, you know, I have to say, you know, my partner, I mean, what were there like 12 cool people at Hopkins in any given year? I mean, come on, we got <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a grind for sure. I mean, I love my days at Hopkins. I love the people that I met and the teachers that I had. But it was, uh, you know, it was interesting because when I got to medical school, I met so many people who had gone to like 
University of Michigan or Stanford or UPenn, and they said, oh, man, college was the best time of my life. And I have to say, it was an enriching time of my life. It was an educational time in my life. Um, but I wouldn't say it was the biggest party school. And, and I suppose that that might be good because it kept me honest. Uh, I know you and I have had some pretty wild times. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was one of these things where you got done with classes and you had a quick lunch and then went straight to the library. And, you know, of course, we made time for other things. But I, I, I swear, all the professors there thought that they, they were the only class that we were taking. And they would give us two or three hours of homework a night. And it was just, you know, it was, uh, like I said, it, I, I, I have no regrets. Uh, but it wasn't the most fun place to be for school. Yeah, like my son, Caleb, who's a freshman at Wisconsin right now, and uh, his third day into school as a freshman year, he, his freshman year, he was at Camp Randall Stadium with 88,000 people for the Wisconsin-Penn State football game jumping all around. So just a little different experience than what I had at Tufts and, and you had at Johns Hopkins. But, yeah. you know, you, you wouldn't trade it. But it, I, I, we joke around, like my partner, Mark Lapp, who graduated in 88, which is why I was asking, played football, was in one of the fraternities. And, you know, the two of you, you guys should have been hanging out because, I mean, you're both awesome dudes. And, like, the fact is I don't think you know each other. So I thought that was pretty uh, – uh, pretty amazing that you guys missed each other. But so when, I mean, so obviously you're at Hopkins, you're thinking medical school, but you know, you, you're not, you, you get a, you get a master's degree in biomed, biomaterials engineering somewhere along the way in there too. So was it always medical school for you or were you weren't sure what you wanted to do? Uh, it was always medical school, but I, I didn't know that orthopedics was going to be my path. Um, you know, when I got to Hopkins, my, it, it's interesting because my dad was an engineer and I don't know why, but Chinese parents want their kids to be engineers, or they seem to, they, there seem to be a lot of Chinese engineers or Taiwanese engineers, I should say. So I get to school and I decide I'm going to major in biology. And, you know, it was, it was one of these things where I told my parents, you know, I'm, I'm going to major in biology. And, my, and I, I could see that my dad was a little bit disappointed. I'm like, well, I'm still headed to medical school. What does it matter to you what I major in? But, you know, with science and math were, uh, were definitely my strengths. And so um, in addition to being a biology major, I decided to go the biomedical engineering route. Um, and, and so that, that's where I started. And then uh, I, fortuitously, my advisor was working on a project with a very famous orthopedic surgeon at Hopkins at the time named David Hungerford. Okay. And David Hungerford was very, uh, a very prolific author. He was, uh, he had teamed up with Ed Chow, who um, was one of the biomedical engineering shining stars at the time. And I got involved with a project looking at surface roughness of a prosthetic femoral head. And we ended up developing a laser-based system that my professor was actually able to sell to uh, a company to use for quality uh, assurance. Um, but it was from that project where my advisor had said to me, um, you know, that's that's not an undergrad level project. That's that's a master's or even a PhD level project. And so he said, you know what, instead of taking these uh, uh, electives like archaeology or whatever, you know, why don't you take some engineering electives in the grad school and you can finish with a master's instead of just an undergrad in, in biomaterials. And that sounded like a great idea to me at the time. Uh, but um, but in fact, it turned out to be quite the slog because, you know, my, my junior and senior year when everyone's kind of 
sort of winding down, their applications are off, you know, I'm, I'm like slaving away at these grad courses. So I, I guess I should say, in all fairness to Hopkins, you know, some, some of that grind was self-inflicted. Um, but it worked out, and I ended up uh, getting a master's. And, you know, working with Hungerford was just enlightening. I had never met someone who was so well-spoken and such a good writer. And and he really got me interested in orthopedics. And, in fact, I thought I was going to be a total joint surgeon. Um, but that's where I sort of decided orthopedics is the way I want to go. So, you know, when I got to medical school, that became my single-minded focus to get into orthopedics. So, so please tell me that mom and dad are, are, are happy and satisfied with the fact that you worked your ass off, got yourself a master's at Hopkins, and then went to medical school at Hopkins, too. They got to be happy now. Come on. You know better than that, Scott. You know, Chinese Chinese parents are like Jewish parents. You know, they're they're just no no matter how well you do, there was always something better you could have done. You know, it's like uh, you know if you if you get a ninety two and it's an A, they say, well, why didn't you get a ninety eight or a hundred? And you're like, geez, they're both A's, but you know, so so no matter how well I think I've done, there's always they always raise the bar just a little bit. And, and, you know, the comparisons always come, well, you know what your friend Dave is doing? Oh my good. And you're just like, Oh, come on. You know, no, but, but go I'm ahead. Bro. That's hysterical. I love, you're spot on. I mean, you're absolutely spot on, but keep going. I love it. Well, no, that, that that's just what I say. I mean, between that and guilt, that's been my entire life. You know, <laughs> we share that too, for sure. I love it. All right. So now you're off to Hopkins. Uh, the underachiever, you know, Hopkins for the triumvirate. You're going to medical school. You're working with Hungerford, who's obviously just amazing. Uh, did, did, did you decide at that point that you were going to head down the orthopedic path or you still weren't sure? Oh, no, I was I was 100 percent committed at that point. I mean, you know, fortunately, because I went to medical school where I'd done my undergrad and then a master's degree, you know, I was able to continue on in the same lab working with David Hungerford and Mike Mont and some of the other luminaries that were at Hopkins at the time. Um, And so it really worked out well because there was a certain level of uh, cohesiveness and continuity of my research that ended up allowing me to publish a lot. You know, when you're at the same place for eight years, I mean, you can do a lot in eight years. So it worked out well for me, I should say. All right. So Mazel Tov, you finally graduate medical school. Everybody's happy. You get your green little jacket and all that stuff that they give us. And you're off to Hospital for Joint Diseases, uh, which is now NYU Langone, but literally, you know, one of the top residencies, you know, in the country. But you're making the big move from Baltimore all the way up to NYC. So Tell us about that residency, because that had to have been just fantastic. Well, you know, first off, I love New York. I mean, New York, as you know, is just it's incomparable. You know, uh, Baltimore has the nickname of Charm City. And as as you know, it's uh, after doing the Inner Harbor and Fells Point, there's eh, it's not so much charm left. <laughs> so, uh, so, be careful. You, you there's know, some Baltimore people listening here. You got to be careful. Uh, <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, it was it was a fantastic place to live. But at the time, it was um, it was pretty crime ridden. I think my car was broken into twice and stolen once. My apartment was broken into. Um, it was just um, it was an interesting place. It was uh, it was a very uh, motivational place to be, though, in terms of school, uh, because because we uh, because Hopkins was just so research focused. Um, I think there were a lot of opportunities uh, that were available to do research in any field. And honestly, being uh, taught by Nobel laureates is just something that uh, 
that it's just very awe-inspiring. And uh, so I, I love my days at Hopkins, don't get me wrong. It was just the fact that, um, you know, I wasn't... I, I just, I didn't appreciate my car being broken into so many times. Well, I should... send, send them some extra money this year for that. I'm sure <laughs> they're going to be asking for it anyway. You'll get a little bit of the guilt. You'll be fine. So <laughs> it's all yes, good. Yeah, yes. But, but, but when I got to New York, it was like eye opening. I never seen so many cultures in one place, such a vibrant city. You know, I, I always thought to myself, you know, I could start at one end of the city and start eating my way in a different restaurant, every single meal. And by the time I got done, there would be a whole nother set of restaurants to explore. Um, and so it was just that dynamic sort of place that made residency just awesome there. That coupled with the fact that I had, you know, amazing co-residents and we were always in it together. I mean, as you know, your residents become your brothers and you do everything with them. You, you know, you, you're, you're in the trenches with them, I should say. Um, and that was fantastic. And I made some lifelong friends and, you know, similarly, the professors that I worked with were obviously very prolific authors and were excellent mentors in terms of doing research. Um, and I had every opportunity at Joy Disease to do research. I even took a lab year um, after my second year to spend a year just, you know, doing some in-depth sort of investigations. And, you know, that led to a lot of publications. And, um, you know, at the time, I was all about the publications, not so much anymore. Uh, but at the time, I was all about the publications because I knew that there was a means to an end and I wanted to get into a good fellowship. And, you know, so it was it was a great time. Um, I, uh, I, just a, a glorious program. I mean, you just had amazing attendings. I mean, it was just a great spot to be. I mean, as you said, really just, just a wonderful, uh, you know, four years now, five years is what you did as well. So then, you know, you work your tail off and, and so when was the transition to sports, right? We talked about the joints and you were there doing a great job at, 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 uh, at hospital for joint diseases, but you decided to go to Stebbin Hawkins and Vale, which was one of the top sports fellowships in the world. And, so what, what, when, when did the light bulb go off that it was sports for you? Well, you know, my, my time in New York was, was amazing simply because, uh, you know, we covered Bellevue Hospital, which is one of the big trauma centers in New York City. And so we spanned the gamut from, you know, the poorest of the poor all the way up to the richest of the rich. And um, the, the, the other side of it, though, was at the time they were involved with the Mets. Um, they were involved with the Alvin Ailey Dance Company. We covered Madison Square Garden. And so there was a really excellent exposure in all different facets of, uh, of orthopedic surgery. And um, I started, I, I did a couple of uh, rotations in different places, including a, a trauma rotation at Shock Trauma. And, you know, I decided eh, trauma is great, but it's not really for me. Um, I thought very hard about spine, but um, I, I couldn't really get into the anatomy too much. And, and I felt that sports really allowed me the chance to specialize. But at the same time, if I decided I wanted to do more of a general practice, well, then the, the transition would be very easy. So, um, but as it turns out, I'm 100% sports. Uh, but it was probably during my third year, I would say, when I finally had the time to really think about things that I, that I really felt that sports was where I wanted to end up. And so that's when I made my decision, I think. And you're, you know, you're one of the first from Stebbin Hawkins. So you got to talk about that year. I mean, I think that's, again, you know, you've, so now you're, you left Baltimore, Charm City, you go to the big, yeah. you go to the big apple and now you're heading out to Colorado to, to Vail, which is obviously one of my favorite places on the planet for skiing, et cetera. But now you're there working with these awesome people at this amazing clinic that people fly in from all over. So what was your experience like for that year in particular? 
Oh, it was it was phenomenal. I mean, the the uh, the transition was a little interesting, going from the big city to a sleepy little ski town. Um, but um, but the training was unbelievable. I, I think I've met some of the brightest people I've ever met um, working at Vail. Um, you know, it was an interesting year though because it was the year that Dr. Hawkins made the transition to South Carolina. So uh, one of my rotations uh, was supposed to be with Hawkins. I think in. February of my fellowship year. Um, and he said, listen, I'm actually going to be in South Carolina at that time. And so you have a choice. You can either stay here and work with a different attending, or I will have you come down to South Carolina and be my fellow there. And I said, well, this is great because, you know, who gives up a chance to work with Dr. Hawkins, you know, arguably one of the greats in orthopedic surgery, uh, certainly of this time anyway. Um, but um, so, so I went to South Carolina for a few months and that was a, a fantastic experience as well, because I, got to work one-on-one -on -one with Hawkins. There were no other fellows there at the time. Um, and so it was really um, a, a, an eye-opening experience. Um, you know, one of the most important things that Stedman Hawkins taught me was that I had the ability to maintain a private practice, but still be academic in nature. Um, prior to going to Stedman Hawkins, I was almost certain I was going to end up in academics. I mean, that's the way my career path was taking me. Um, but fortunately, the, the Stedman Hawkins experience really taught me that I could have both. I could live where I wanted to and still publish and give talks and travel. And, you know, up until my kids got a little bit older, that's what I did for many years. Um, so I, I have no misgivings about that year. Vail obviously was a tremendous place to spend fellowship, particularly during the winter. Although, you know, it's it, people always ask, you know, what, did you get 100 days of skiing that year? Well, Yes and no. I mean, I did a lot of skiing, but uh, but it's a busy place during the winter as well. You know, when you're on call for the ER, you're you're pretty busy. So um, it was it was a great place to train, particularly as I ended up in ski country in northern New Hampshire. So um, well familiar with the injury patterns, with the types of people. And so it, it was a, it was an excellent experience. Yeah, we'll we'll get to your your U.S. Nordic uh, involvement, because I think that's you know something you're super passionate about. But before we get there. Um, I want to fast forward to the first time that you and I met, which was in 2008, and that was for the Beijing Summer Olympics. And Johnson & Johnson with Will Chow put together uh, a program, which was a sports medicine education program uh, with, with the country of China, pulling together orthopedic surgeons from all over China and bringing in orthopedic surgeons like ourselves to, to help train them. And so you, myself, Tim Kremchek, and Dave Weinstein got together over in Beijing and we had an amazing time. But before we get to that, I, you know, do you, do you remember the flight on the way over to Beijing as we were flying on Air Canada uh, halfway there? Do you have any recollection of what I'm going to talk about or no? Are you, are you talking about the, uh, the, the flight attendant that came up to us and uh, told us that there was a woman in distress? So, so let, let's be clear. I gave you a sleeping pill that was new at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, Here, and try you, this. You were passed out in the back. Somehow, some way, she tapped me on the shoulder. I don't know how they knew that we were doctors. And she's like, we're having somebody in distress. You know, can, can we're going to bring him up to first class. You know, can you take a look? So so they bring her up to first class. They lay her down. And, and uh, I have a stethoscope in my ears. And you wake up somehow, somewhere. I think I tapped you or whatever. You look over and you saw me with a stethoscope in my ears and you were like, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 prior to that, though, you, you have to tell them that, you know, for, first off, 
Scott is a, or Dr. Sigmund is a professional traveler, right? So, <laughs> so, so he tells me, and I don't even remember the website, but he said for any given flight, you just have to go onto this website and they'll tell you the absolute best seat that you can get. <laughs> and, 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 you know, by, by class. So it's not like you're paying any more for this, you know, you're in first class and they'll just tell you which seat is the best first class seat. So, so Dr. Sigmund tells me, yeah, you, you need to be in uh, whatever eight F or something, you know, and he's got the same seat on the other side of the plane. That's right. So, so, so then he comes over and he, and he taps me and, you know, I'm, I'm groggy as all heck at this point. I'm like, what is going on? And yes, exactly. I'm like, Oh, this is not good. And uh, I, and to this day, I still don't understand how they figured out we we're doctors. Cause you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who, who uh, it's not that I avoid putting doctor in the, uh, you know, when I'm registering for the flight, I just don't think to do it. I just type in my name, you know, yeah, I, no, I, it, it was, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I don't do that either, but I guess somehow that maybe the announcement went off and I just sort of was sort of waking up as, as they were doing it. But I don't know if you remember, like the captain comes out of the cockpit to, you know, to see how this woman, it was this poor Chinese woman who basically didn't take her meds that morning. We somehow, some way figured it out. We got her, her meds, but the captain comes over. He's like, he's like, you know, we're over Kazakhstan right now. It's like, do you think we can, we can still make it to China? I'm like, don't worry about the patient, you know, pilot. You get us out of Kazakhstan. We're going to China. That's right. That's right. And and, and I remember thinking when um, the flight attendant said, oh, well, we're going to give you something special. And I'm like thinking, wow, are they giving us a free flight or maybe an upgrade or something? Yeah, we each got a bottle of wine. That was fine. Yeah, that was fine. It was all good. So, I mean, the mission that we were there for was really special. I mean, it was something I was very proud of to be a part. You know, we went over there, and I don't know if you recall, it was like Professor An, I think, Beijing Hospital number three. It was like, yes. to bring it all back. But that professor was the only one that was doing shoulder surgery in all of China. And basically, there were 60 shoulder surgeries that were done in China that year with two, you know, two billion shoulders that were present. Only 60 arthroscopic shoulder surgeries have been done that year. And we were we were tasked with the idea of bringing these 60 orthopedic surgeons from all over China and helping to educate them in arthroscopic shoulder surgery and arthroscopic knee surgery. It was it was amazing. I mean, it was it was hard work and it was profound. Well, it was it was also eye opening to realize, you know, Dr. Ahn, if you recall, was the head of the Olympic team, uh, medical team, um, and also the uh, leading like orthopedic sports medicine surgeon in the country. And so he had handpicked uh, a group of orthopedic surgeons nationwide, as you pointed out. Um, and it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, I, I don't know if do, do you remember the dinner that we had at the Empress's Palace that they they told us no no one gets to get uh, to go there except uh, by invitation and I, and we went to the restaurant where they had invented Peking duck and it, I mean the whole trip soup to nuts was unbelievable mm-hmm. um, you know the, the the one thing I probably could have done without was when we were having dinner at the Empress's Palace and and do you remember they said. Um, um, you're going to have something special tonight. It's 150 proof rice liquor. And we said, oh, wow, I've, I've never tried this before. So, so they pour us these glasses that turn out to be uh, sort of like double shot glass size, I'd say. Um, and our, uh, our, our 
interpreter at the time, Daniel's son, if you remember him, uh, had said, if they ever raise their glass to you, you have to drink. That's how it's done in China. You know, and, and so we're so we're thinking, oh, yeah, no big deal. I mean, come on, we're used to drinking. Right. And so so, so I, I, I'm sitting next to Dr. Sigmund and, you know, this this little guy comes over. What was his name? Do you, do you remember? Oh, I a little, know exactly you're talking about. Do you remember? Wait, I, I think it was I think it was on also because remember, you started calling him big, little big on. on and little on <laughs> big on and little on. That's right. So little on who who probably weighs a buck five soaking wet comes up to Dr. Sigmund and I. And says, uh, you know, he he does the little, uh, you know, hand underneath the glass raised uh, to uh, us, which which yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it, uh, in in uh, Mandarin, it's gumpe, gumpe means uh, empty glass, and and so he does this to us. So we have to drink the whole thing, right? So now we've done a double shot of one hundred fifty proof rice liquor, and we didn't realize that that this became like a receiving line and like every single one of them gets up to Ten toast more. them. Ten Ten more. more. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and they come up to each one of us and they say, Gumpe, and, and we have to keep on doing shot after oh shot after God. shot of this. And I remember <laughs> you looked up at me and you said, boy, I am really feeling this. And I said, yeah, me too. And you said, my question to you, is how is little on even standing? <laughs> and and the guy was like he was like unfazed by this. So I mean it was right. it was unbelievable. There were, there were so many unique things about that trip. One of my other favorite stories about that trip was when uh, we were on the bus and Daniel San says to us, he's like, "Doctors, no problem. You don't have to worry about. It. We have the number one bus driver in all of Beijing. He's been driving for ten years." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I think, we're, you know, I've been driving for 30, maybe I ought to drive, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. But but that guided tour of Beijing was incredible. Yeah, the, was the, whole, the whole experience, we really made a difference. There were some really, really great rock stars. And th the thing that's so remarkable about that for me in particular, Andy, is that, you know, I've been back a few times, and if you really look at where the Chinese surgeons are at this point, they have like leapfrogged you know, the, the the decades and decades that it took us in the U.S. to be able to develop an arthroscopic, you know, pathway to do what we do, they they literally were able to accelerate their healing quite quickly, and they caught up quite quickly, uh, and they're doing some pretty remarkable surgeries over there, and we were really at the, at the beginning of it, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, over the last decade or so, if you look at where publications are coming from, you see a lot now, uh, you know, not just contemporary, but cutting edge things, pushing the envelope coming mm -hmm. out of China. So, so I, I think it's it is pretty remarkable. And, and we were there for the nascency of it, which is uh, which which is very exciting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That was it was great times. And really what a, what a pleasure to spend that time with you and and Tim and Tim and Dave. So so there's some more stuff I want to talk about. I mean, you know, you're you're the medical director and head team physician for US, uh, USA Nordic Sport. You've been involved in, in the skiing side of things, where you live, you're passionate about it. You're up there and. and Upper New Hampshire, where you're, and you've been passionate, you know, traveling the world and, and being a part of this. And you hooked me into to the time period for a couple of years. I was a part as well, and you and I, I went out to Stredsky Plezo Slovakia, for the World Junior U.S. Ski Jump Championships, and it was just such an honor to to be a part of that. I want you to tell everybody about this because I think it's a it's a it's a great story. It's a big part of your life, and tell us all about it. 
Yeah, so when, when I was at Stedman Hawkins, Dr. Stedman was um, chief medical officer for the U.S. ski team. And, um, you know, as fellows, we got a chance to be involved locally. Um, and once we finished, they sort of kept us uh, in the loop and asked if we wanted to cover events for the U.S. ski team. Um, and so that's how I started. Um, and it was it, it probably let's see, I think it was actually right around 2000. And, oh, no, it was 2009. Um, I was in uh, Lati, Finland. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to speak with a Finnish coach. Uh, whose whose English was about as good as my Finnish, um, and so you know what what do you do? You speak louder, right? Uh, because if you if you just speak louder in English, that makes them understand. And all of a sudden, this this American voice comes out of nowhere, and he said, "Oh, so you're American?" And and I looked down to see uh, this guy named Alan Johnson, who at the time was the technical director for the event, uh, but he was he, he had two kids in. USA ski jumping. So he was sort of heading up the effort, heading up that team at the time. Um, so I ended up uh, uh, working with him to provide coverage for USA ski jumping at the time, um, which eventually became USA Nordic by taking Nordic combined under their umbrella. Um, and from that, it just sort of morphed and took off. It's It's really... Um, been one of the highlights of my career, I should say. I love working with athletes. You know, they're the ones who keep me young. They keep my diet good. Uh, you know, I, I was just talking about this with someone. It's uh, if, if when I'm with the team, if I've gained like five pounds and they haven't seen me in like a year, they'll be like, "Oh, so you're gaining weight, huh?" And you're like, "Wow, geez." But but that's that's because these guys are at the top of their game, and 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 as a result. They keep me at the top of my game and keep me interested in what I'm doing uh, simply because it's just the highest level of sport. And it's honest, too. You know, these guys don't do it for the fame. I mean, uh, no one I, I bet you no one on this uh, on this podcast right now could could name a ski jumper if they tried or a Nordic combined athlete. Yet somehow around the Olympics, it becomes like the signature sport and everyone watches it. Um, it is pretty unbelievable, though, to watch these guys. I mean, if you ever see them go off a. 120 meter jump, um, you know, it, it, it means that they're supposed to fly 120 meters in the air, which is, you know, whatever, 150 feet or something like that. I mean, uh, 132 feet, I guess, um, something like that. But but it, it's a long way. And, and the crazy thing is um, 120 meters is about the biggest jump in, the, in this country. But out in Europe now, they have ones that are 240. Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable right. when you go up. There's one, oh, one, one word comes to mind. Meshuggah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They are truly Michigana. And, and it's, it's almost to the point where when I watch these guys going off a 240 meter jump, you know, I'm almost not even caring how they do. I just want them to land it and be okay. Oh, um, you know, it, it's well, it, it begs the question, you know, what are the limits of human performance? Are we taking it too far? Um, you know, we've had some, not, not our team in particular, although we have had some serious injuries, but worldwide we'd have, we'd have, we have had serious enough injuries that people are starting to question, you know, are we, are we going too far with this? Because every year a jump gets built, it, it's bigger and it's bigger and it's bigger. And now it's not even called uh, ski jumping at that level. It's called ski flying simply because when you watch these guys from that height with that kind of speed, 
they're they're actually flying. You can see them sort of shimmying in the air as you know as um, aerodynamics takes hold. Amazing. And it, oh, it's it's truly amazing to watch. It's truly terrifying. Um, you know, I know a lot of parents who can't even watch their kids jump because at that level, it's terrifying. Well, for, I, for I walked up. I walked the, up the damn thing to check it out just to stand next to it, and I was scared to death. Just oh, yes. in all the place where they jump from, and if and I remember in Slovakia there was a cloud cover. They were they, yes. were they were flying off the end of this damn ski jump, flying through the clouds, and then the ceiling broke through when there's about forty feet before they're about ready to land. So they're like jumping through a cloud and then having to that's, land. You know? that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Ski ski flying is is um th- those jumps are so high that frequently you can't even see the top from the bottom. You're just waiting for them to penetrate whatever sort of cloud cover there is. And then you say, oh, there they are. Um, and and, and there's, then there's a couple seconds of prayer on my end. And, you know, when, when they land, that's that's what's important to me, that they land. I mean, it's serious injuries too, man. They got to have the helicopter standing by. I mean, if, they're, if they come off of that jump the wrong way, they can really have life-threatening injuries. So you are you are on call and you have to be available. I mean, it's a big deal. Yes, yes. And you have to be engaged and you can't be out in the audience watching, you know, you have to be yeah. right next to the bottom of the jump and get ready to jump over that rail and run to your athlete if something happens. So yes, it's it's a little bit uh, hair raising at times. So are you going to Beijing next year? I am. In fact, we just uh, we just heard that uh, Beijing is going to mandate that all athletes be vaccinated. So that's that's sort of a big change. Uh, but I'm vaccinated and all everyone on our team is vaccinated. So that's not going to be a big deal for us. Yeah. Just for the audience, just so everybody knows that the the Winter Olympics, we just had the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which were postponed a year. But uh, uh, February of 2022 in Beijing, the next Winter Olympics and. Sounds like Dr. Andy Chen and his team will be there representing the USA on the ski jump as well as Nordic combined. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it should be fun. I, I, I hope so anyway. Yeah, for everybody stay safe. I'm really glad that they're getting vaccinated. I think that really makes a difference. It's uh, There were some low vaccination rates for in, in Tokyo for the last Summer Olympics. It really made it sort of a very difficult process. We uh, we just had Chris Leon, who's the team physician for, for USA Volleyball Indoor, uh, they won the gold uh, medal. So that was awesome for Chris. And uh, we're super proud of him too. But uh, look, you know, Andy, this is this is what we do on the Ortho Show. We bring, this is a fun episode because you and I have so much to, in common. We've had great stories together, but it's just being able to tell the unique stories about remarkable orthopedic surgeons like yourself. And we can't thank you enough for coming on today. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It was great to see you again. And listen, if you do gain weight, I want that blue velvet sport coat for me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. 